the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And he's here to say good afternoon. Welcome, Wednesday edition for the first day of September. Hope you're doing well. Made it halfway through the week here. And I tell you what, I had a conversation with your boss earlier today. We occasionally do that. Reach out to listeners' bosses and just say, you know, they're faithful listeners, working hard. Deserve a little bit more time off, some time off of the family. So I have it on good authority that the boss is going to let you have next Monday off. <laughs> There's somebody listening right now who's working on Labor Day saying, yeah, you didn't talk to my boss, Craig, <laughs> you bum. Any rate, great to have you with us today. Got a lot to talk about. Coincidental to yesterday's program related to public education, we got notice today that a new initiative has been handed to the Attorney General's um, office to uh, get validated for the November 22 general election ballot bringing school choice to California. And talk about that. <coughs> Mike Alexander is going to join us <clears throat> pardon me, a little bit later on in the show. I apologize if you hear a little bit of frog in my throat today. It's the, the smoke. The smoke is finally starting to get to me. And uh, <clears throat> I'm a fresh air freak, and being out on all this is not uh, not compatible with uh, the um, smoke level we're having here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I want to begin tonight looking forward and back, looking forward to a tragic anniversary that's just 10 days away from us, that looking back, some statistics... Some of these maybe you know, others perhaps not. 110 stories times two, so 220 stories, nearly 10 million square feet of office space, enough to accommodate 35,000 workers, so large that in fact it occupied its own zip code. Of course, I'm talking about the two towers that fell, taking with it the lives of 2,977 fellow Americans on September the 11th of 2001, the 20th anniversary of which we will memorialize in just a scant 10 days. If you are too young to remember or memory has faded, let's take you back. Tower 2 has had a major explosion and what appears to be a complete collapse surrounding the entire area. Marine 6, therefore we were notified, Jason. Today, our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. And we responded with the best of America. 
four commercial airplanes in the United States, two United Airlines, two American Airlines, have crashed. We know two of them went into, uh, this is one of the planes, American Airlines 77, Dulles to Los Angeles. That plane, that second plane, believed to have crashed uh, into uh, the Pentagon. First American Airlines flight believed to have crashed into one of the World Trade Center towers. United Airlines flight 93 leaving Newark on the way to San Francisco, believed to have uh, crashed in Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh, and finally another United Airlines flight believed to have crashed into the World Trade Center. Wow, hard to believe that was 20 years ago in just a scant 10 days. Helping us to look back to remember and memorialize, Edward Grinnan joins us. He is editor-in-chief and vice president of Guidepost Publications, wonderful publication. They're going to be featuring a number of stories in the September edition. And Edward, we appreciate you taking some time to be with us tonight as we look back on the events of November the, I'm sorry, of September the 11th of 2001. You yourself, you were in New York City and Manhattan on that date. What was that experience like for you, to your recollection? Well, Craig, first of all, thank you for having me on the show tonight. It's a real pleasure to be with you and your audience. And also, thank you for giving me Monday off. I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I remember that. I, I kind of remember the whole week. Well, we'll talk a little bit about September 11th, the morning of. Um, I had gone into the office fairly early that morning uh, to talk to a, a young job applicant who was uh, interested in coming to work for us, and she couldn't get off work, so she had to come in before work. So I met her at 7.30. We talked from 7.30 to 8. And then she left, and as she left, she said, I've got to get down to Church Street in the subway and get to my job by 8.30. And Church Street is where the World Trade Center was. So 15 minutes later, you know, I was praying my heart out for her because I knew she was getting on a subway and going right into the heart of that terror. So it turns out she was okay. Um, the other thing I remember from that moment was over the summer, I'd hired a new editorial assistant, and she sat right outside my office. Um, during our interview process, she happened to mention to me uh, that she was part of the um, New York City Emergency Response Team because she was an EMT, a volunteer EMT in Central Park on the weekends. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, well, you know, if there were a citywide emergency, I would have to leave my job immediately and report for duty. And I said, well, what do you mean? Like, uh, uh, there's lots of emergencies in New York. There's an emergency every minute. She said, no, 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 it would have to be something really, really big, like, like the World Trade Center bombing from a few years ago. And we both kind of laughed, saying, well, that would never happen. And then at about 8.15, on the morning of September 11th, she stood in my doorway. And I heard her little shortwave radio go off. And all she said was, I got to go. And we didn't see, that was Tina. And Tina we didn't see for a good two weeks. She was down there as an EMT. First, she was there to help re retrieve the, the wounded that they expected to come out of that building and of course there were very few survivors so she spent the rest of the time um you know ministering to the um to the to the, all the workers all the emergency workers who were down there working on the pile for weeks and weeks afterwards but it's you know that moment when she looked at me and she said i gotta go you know the world changed it changed for me changed for the people at god it changed for everybody in the country and it's not the world um i remember we could we were located at 34th and Madison Avenue at the time, just about a mile or so, about 
close to two miles above the World Trade Center, but we could see um, the smoke coming up from those towers from our office windows, and we just saw those that smoke going up into the air, dark, evil smoke, and we just shook our heads not knowing what was going to happen, and then the collapse came, as you recounted on your, your opening to the segment. And I went down to Madison Avenue, and that's when I began to see the people coming up from downtown that were covered in ash. You remember those pictures of those people. You know, they were just they were just gray from head to toe from all the ash that had fallen on them. And they were walking like a shocked army, you know, just, you know, one foot in front of the other. And we came out, and store owners and deli owners were handing out water and towels and doing everything we could help these people. And a couple of people from my office, from the Guy Post office, you know, held hands together, and we prayed for everyone as they passed. We wanted to pray for every single person who was coming up from the World Trade Center. As a New Yorker, I'm curious, Edward, that that sudden shift when initially this felt like, well, uh, an airplane terribly off course, maybe headed to Kennedy, yeah. maybe going to LaGuardia, we don't know, has hit one of the Twin Towers. And then yeah. that sudden shift that went from from shock to utter disbelief when the second tower hit and the realization that there's more to this than just a pilot that's lost control, that this went right. from being a horrible, shocking, horrific accident to something that was quite intentional. What, what, can, you, can, you, can you recall your feelings at the moment, Edward, yes, when the realization absolutely. happened? Because when we heard, you know, a rumor in the building that their plane hit the World Trade Center, we thought, oh, you know, it was an off-course private plane, probably from Peterborough Field in um, in New Jersey, and right right across from the World Trade Center, really. And I thought, boy, it's a beautiful day. How could a pilot get that confused? So we turned on the radio because we didn't, you know, the, the internet was still somewhat in, in its infancy in 2001. Um, so we turned on the old-fashioned radio, and nobody was quite sure what had happened. And then, suddenly, the second tower was hit. I guess it was the North Tower second. And it was almost like we could feel the vibrations with the floor of our building. Not literally, but symbolically. Everybody knew that this was different. That there was no way that two planes could accidentally hit the World Trade Center. And that first plane was probably not a little private plane. It was what the second plane was, and that was a, a fully loaded airliner. And that was terrifying to think that not one, but two airliners would be hijacked and flown into these massive towers. As you said in your opening, or as you, you, the narration said, the World Trade Center was like a small city. You know, it was, it was huge. It was 35,000-plus employees, and that's bigger than a lot of towns in America. And for that kind of a shock to happen to that many people, it, it, you know, is it was just it was heartbreaking and infuriating all at once. Um, and it certainly brought us to our knees, you know, because that's your first response. Craig, one thing I do remember from that day, ah, was the sirens that went off. And as I was standing down on Madison Avenue watching the people come up, I just heard siren after siren after siren of first responders who were going in the opposite direction of that, that army of shocked people. Um, and I think about it today, and it still haunts me to know that so many of the men and women in those vehicles 
and have their sirens going and we're headed to the disaster, we're never going to come out. And that still haunts me to think of that. Yeah, it's it's a special person who chooses a profession when trouble arises instead of running away from, which is that fight-flight natural human response. Instead of running from danger, they run into danger. They run toward danger um, for the greater good of others. Uh, You know, I've heard it described this way. World War II survivors, particularly of the London Blitz, would talk about the chill that ran up their spine every time they would hear the air raid sirens go off and how in the middle of the night that could be such a jarring experience and to rush to the Anderson shelter and or the underground tubes to uh, find some kind of a shelter from the uh, the German blitz. But eventually World War II ended, the blitz ended, the air raid sirens went silent, silent. maybe now... In some communities where they still exist or used for things like hurricane warnings, they go off, they're tested mm-hmm. every now and then. But for somebody living in a major metropolitan area like San Francisco or New York, sirens are an everyday occurrence as fire trucks and ambulances and police make their way through the city responding to various emergencies and whatnot. That's something that you nor- you, New Yorkers can never escape, that unlike those <laughs> who survived the Blitz, finally the uh, air raid sirens were silenced. But those sirens associated with 9-11, they're a daily occurrence in New York. Are there ever moments, Edward, for you that it, it just as you're casually heading to or from work, going about your business, you hear a siren and, and suddenly a chill goes up your spine? A little bit. You know, my mother always, when she heard a siren, and I grew up in the Midwest, so it wasn't New York City, but we heard enough sirens and thought Detroit, she would always send up a prayer. That was her thing. She'd stop and pray at every siren. Now, if I did that, in New York, I mean, you standing I still all day. <laughs> yes, I'd be praying all day. But yeah, sometimes you know when siren just suddenly comes on and it's close to you, um, it sort of startles you out of your shoes a little bit, and it makes me remember those. You know, I never heard so many sirens as I did on nine eleven. I mean, it was just if you can imagine the wail of these sirens, one wail on top of another wail of siren on top of another one from both sides of Manhattan Island, going down the east side and the west side, and converging down there at the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. And it's really, those are the people who who not only run to danger, but do it uh, with a willingness to sacrifice, even sacrifice their own lives. And it's that, you know, that sense of heroic sacrifice, it's very much part of the, the, the Christian message, the, the message of sacrifice, that you will give your life for, for, a, greater, for a greater cause. And so many of these firefighters, I, our offices were around Midtown, but I lived right down the street from two firehouses um, who lost a lot of people, including my father, Mike Judge, who mm, was yes. at a firehouse just half a block away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I knew my father, Father Mike, slightly. I mean, I knew him from the neighborhood. Um, he used to pet my dogs when I would take them for a walk, and he was out. And, you know, for it to be that close... You know, to be to have that kind of a one degree of separation is 
It's, you know, it does. It sends a shiver down your spine. It's, 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 it's sobering, no doubt about that. One of the interesting things, and I want to pick up the story when we come back after a timeout, but one of the interesting things, so much of the narrative, undoubtedly, in the coming days leading up to the 20th anniversary, is about, well, frankly, kind of the way I opened the show tonight, a reminder of the tremendous sacrifice, the horrific loss, the, the, the lives that perished, uh, those that just, you know, for them it was another Tuesday, and it ended very differently and others that thought, well, you know, we, we might uh, save a baby or t- two today or a heart attack, a victim or, you know, w- whatever we would do in the normal discharge of our duties in police, ambulance, work, fire, etc. Um, you know, maybe rescue a cat if it's a low-key day, not realizing the horrors that would unfold uh, before the day got well underway. But that's only part of the story. So much of the story is about the tremendous heroism and the stories of survivors and there's there's a couple that you um are spotlighting in guideposts that i think really bear sharing because it, it it's the side of humanity we look at the tragedy of this horrific terrorist attack but as much as it was a display of, of horrificness of the the sinful nature of mankind there's also some aspects that are very encouraging and stories that i can think uh, can bring a sense of hope and uh, and motivation uplifting encouragement to us even to this day even 20 years later edward grennan with us today editor in Chief, Vice President of Guidepost Publications, a wonderful magazine, been around for years, online as well. You can get information at guidepost.org. That's guidepost.org. We're going to get back to more of our conversation as we remember 9-11 20 years ago. Lifeline continues after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mr. Marcos, we heard reports that people were, were jumping out of the building. Did you see that? Unfortunately, I, I saw about uh, five uh, people jumping from up uh, the building, and I can tell you there's no other, i never had such an overwhelming and uh, terrible experience in, in my life. Uh, so I've been in this job for a long time, and I've seen a lot of things. Uh, it, it's, it's just uh, something that is very hard to describe. Some of these shocking reminders 20 years later on the Anniversary just a scant 10 days from today of the attack on the World Trade Center. With me is Edward Grennan. He is editor-in-chief and vice president of Guidepost Publications. And, you know, we're going to hear plenty of those stories, Edward, in the coming days uh, leading up to the anniversary. But there is a heartwarming side to all of this. Uh, that I think we can really draw not only strength for our own faith, but but tremendous encouragement um, of some real incredible heroes, not only in terms of those who stayed to fight and rescue others, but even some of the stories of survivors. One mm-hmm. that, that, that is highlighted in guideposts is a gentleman I had the privilege of interviewing quite a number of years ago, uh, and, and he was one of the workers um, up on the 78th floor who was literally rescued by his guide dog. Share a little bit of yeah. that, if you would, for listeners. Well, it's an amazing... You think of a man whose um, sight is impaired to the point that he needs a, a guide dog uh, to assist him through his daily life, and he's on the 78th floor uh, of the World Trade Center when it is struck by an airplane. You would think that someone like that would be doomed. Um, and yet he prayed, and... I think I mean his dog, his 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 sight dog, led him 
through. And imagine the chaos. Imagine, you know, the darkness of the stairway, 78 flights, the debris raining down, the people screaming and, and trying to fight their way out of the building in the, in the pitch dark because the electricity, of course, went out. And his dog somehow guided him with the help of many people along the way who put his safety ahead of their own. And he, to this day, he, he, he attributed to the prayers that he said on each step of those 78 flights, and he got out safely. Um, I'll tell you another story that I, that I love. And you can, you can find these stories. I'll give you the address, the web address, in a minute. Um, because we have an amazing collection. You know, for New Yorkers, you know, the 20th anniversary is, is significant, but for people who were, you know, in Manhattan that day, every year is a major anniversary. And we have collected stories over the course of 20 years from all sorts of people who show that it was a day of both tragedy, but also inspiration and faith. Um, and, and that's the collection of stories and beautiful slideshows and, and uplifting videos that we have uh, online for you. And probably the best collection of stories on 9-11 anywhere, in, in my view. And one of my favorites was by Michelle Guzman. She was arguably the very last person pulled from the rubble. And one of the few survivors, as we recall, not many people made it out of the, who didn't make it out of the building. There just wasn't a lot of survivors. But she was one, and they found her beneath the rubble. She was there, and she was, she was praying and praying to be rescued, but she was also praying um, for her family to be comforted in the event that she wasn't rescued. And they did find her, and they said, the rescuers said, please, just hang on, we're going to, we have to move this rubble very carefully to free you, and then we'll get you to the hospital. And she was dehydrated, and she had some major injuries. And she, as she tells it, there was a, a rescuer named Paul, and he reached his hand uh, through the rubble, and he said, my name is Paul, just hold on to my hand while we get you free. And I will, I will stay here, and I will hold your hand the whole time. And he did. Uh, and they did get her free, and they got her to the hospital, and she had serious injuries, but not life-threatening. The next morning, uh, the, the, the rescuers, the, the EMTs and the firefighters and the cops who had been able to pull her from the rubble uh, came into her uh, hospital room to see that she was okay. And she said, I want to I shake Paul's hand. I want to thank him for what he did for me. And... Uh, the people looked at each other and they said, there was no Paul there. No one named Paul was there and, and no one held your hand. Hmm. And she said, oh, yes, he did. Be careful, lest you entertain angels amongst you. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and we have, you know, we have so many stories. Uh, so many that the, the actual address for the collection is guidepost.org slash sept, S-E-P-T, 11, the number 11. So it's guidepost.org slash sept11. And, uh, it, you know, it, it'll help you be at peace, I think, with what happened, because it does show that there is goodness and there is faith and there is grace. Well, and, and like uh, in the story that you strategy. share of, of, of Ganell, who, you know, was comforted by the, the mystery <laughs> rescuer that was likely an angel. Uh, and I right. think back, and this is this is fresh in many of our memories. If we watched the horror unfolding of the events surrounding the collapse of the condominium tower there in Surfside, oh, yeah. Florida, and to think that there was only twelve stories of rubble there, 
And yet, miraculously, there were people that survived that were pulled out of the rubble of the North or South Tower with 110 stories worth of rubble. I know. It was, it was one, you know, I, I, I did not see the towers collapse visually. I saw the, the rubble and the smoke rising into the air from my vantage point. But it's an image that's burned into my mind as clearly as any image I've ever retained in my life. Yeah. I'm, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget those towers going down and realizing how close, you know, I was to that and how, you know, how connected I feel. And I think, too, Edward, the reminder of the fragility of life and what a precious and yet very delicate gift this is from God and how we need to cherish it and honor it uh, in every way that we can. And that is a date that you, you mentioned that you'll never forget. I, we've often heard it compared with, you know, for those of us that are slightly older Americans, where were you when JFK was assassinated? Uh, yeah, I, was, I remember. Big milestones in life that happened. You know, sometimes it might be something joyful like the birth of a first child in in uh, you know for you and your spouse or something tragic like 9/11 but we're we always right. have that kind of indelibly etched in our minds the one thing hopefully is we mark the 20th anniversary and again many of these wonderful stories uh, down through the years collected by guideposts that you can enjoy online guideposts.org forward slash sept just abbreviation for september sept 11 and uh, you'll get a chance to not only experience um, what some people felt and saw and survived through, but also I think as a reminder, of, not of the tragedy per se, but of the tremendous hero heroism that was demonstrated by so many. And again, if we can be reminded about just how fragile life was and that we can cherish it more and appreciate it more, um, then maybe we can all walk away from a horrific collective experience like this as Americans, uh, hopefully better people, more appreciative people. And, and you know, in, in the wake of a lot of what we're going through right now, as we watch events unfold in Afghanistan or the tremendous fires here in California or uh, the scourge of COVID across the globe, to, to also again be reminded um, that this is a tremendous gift and we need to do all that we can to protect it, to honor it. Edward Grinnan, thank you so much for the time and the insights. Again, I'll point folks to uh, it's a great publication has been around for years and one that you can certainly enjoy and uh, gain great inspiration from. Guideposts online at guideposts.org. And again, the, uh, the tribute, the memorial to um, September 11th, guideposts.org forward slash sept, S-E-P-T, 11. 535 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's going to seem like the theme this week as we spent a good part of yesterday's show talking about many of the challenges in education these days, not limited strictly to uh, the COVID disaster, but to the, to the broader sense that I think more and more parents having dealt with the pitfalls of remote learning and mixed education, et cetera, et cetera, are beginning to demonstrate that, you know, there's there's some kinks in the armor here. There are problems with the system. And uh, as Bob Zadek so wonderfully put it on Tuesday, um, this is something that a little healthy dose of good old-fashioned competition might indeed fix. Well, to the rescue... 
Um, there is a school choice initiative that will, uh, if all goes well, be on the November 22nd, uh, in November 22 general election ballot that will give Californians an opportunity to once again, and maybe for the first time, be empowered to be able to vote with their feet and do what we do in every aspect of daily life. You know, if the burger joint down the street doesn't, you know, serve up a decent burger, you'd take your business somewhere else. But many parents have been deprived of that opportunity when it comes to educating their child, not least of which is if you choose to privately educate your child or homeschool them, there are enormous sacrifices that are involved. And, you know, public public versus private education, since you don't get your money back, it's almost, almost like double taxation in a broad sense. Mike Alexander joins us now, chair of the California School Choice Initiative. And uh, Mike, this is a this is an opportunity whose time, well, in some respects is well past due, but uh, it couldn't be more ideal in the wake of the challenges our state has been facing because of COVID. Well, you got it, Craig. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you and your audience for welcoming, welcoming me here on your program. Are you guys up in North Cal- Northern California there? We are right in the middle of uh, the, the, uh, the bullseye, San Francisco. Oh, there you are. Great. Well, you know, uh, up in San Francisco... There's one one thing that uh, characterizes uh, uh, you know, that neighborhood, of course, is that it is filled with Democrats, small D Democrats. We, uh, you know, the the people uh, whose children are stuck in failing schools, stuck at the bottom, stuck in ignorance, stuck with the knowledge that they're not going to get out of their situation. And uh, I know you guys are a Christian station, and this is a good opportunity to talk about you know, the, uh, our Christian obligations to the least among us and the folks who are least capable of speaking for themselves. And those would be the poor and the disadvantaged, the people who are starting out at the bottom and Craig. They're never going to get off that bottom. And, and I'm glad now, you mentioned that, Mike, because there are folks yeah. that live in Blackhawk or live in, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know, uh, Atherton or uh, some of yeah. the ritzier parts of uh, Marin County that uh, have enough income available that they can choose yeah. to send their child to a private school or maybe have time in, in their family situation that permits them to homeschool. So if they're not satisfied with how their child is performing, they have options. But that only describes a small portion, the bigger portion, and this is important for people to get. This is not just about, well, parents who have kids, if this passes, will now have the opportunity of true choice. But think of the greater good here, that this is a society in which all of us are having to deal with the, the, the outcomes related to parents who have children in underperforming schools that do not have the resources to privately or homeschool their child. And as a result, the kid walks across the stage of graduation after 12, 13 years of matriculating through, can't read their own diploma, and now they have to struggle for an entire lifetime. And as a result, it's not just these individual families that suffer, Mike. It's the whole state. It's the whole state. It's an entire society. Uh, you know, it, it, it is uh, you know, our, our, our brothers and, and our sisters um uh, depending upon your your religious perspective too um you know 
they grow up in a uh, in a culture that is hostile to learning, is hostile to God, is hostile to religion, is hostile to the American founding, is hostile to parents and their rights to form their children morally, intellectually, and religiously. That be- that right belongs to the parents. It's God-given as well as uh, a natural right. So, Mike, help uh, us understand how is this how is this initiative designed to work? Because there have been struggles to try sure. to get a school voucher type initiative on the ballot and passed in states like California going back decades. What's unique oh, about yeah. this, and how do you see this working? Yes, first of all, uh, anybody who wants more details, California School Choice dot org, all spelled out. California School Choice dot org. All right. Uh, Craig, our program has four key features. Number one, it's called the Education Freedom Act. Number one, it's going to create, on request of any parent, what we call an education savings account. And that's a trust account that's uh, held for the benefit of the child. Number two, each year, that account will be credited with $14,000, which Number three, which is, by the way, not all we spend in California. We spend 20 a year. We're just taking 14 for the, for the kid that wants out. Number three, the parents, not the politicians or the zip code, can choose what private or parochial religious school that they want to send their child to. It has to be accredited. Number four, keep any money left over for college, vocational training, rather qualified educational expense. Simple. Applies to everybody. Just like the current education system provides a, uh, a public school quote-unquote education for every every child in California, regardless of income, high, low, or in between, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of where they came from, including children who may be illegal. It applies to everybody in our state. It's like it ought to be. And that will introduce, as you already pointed out, Craig, the dreaded, let's all whisper the C word, competition, right? Everybody gets better in the system, including existing private schools, including uh, uh, existing public schools. And there's a couple of important keys here I think that listeners need to be aware of, and that is number one, as you point out. Um, this gives it. This is not. To, this is not to try to punish public schools. There are many fine public schools out there with lots of hardworking teachers that do an excellent job. And if you're fortunate enough to be in a district and live in an area in a zip code that has all of that, God bless you. But there are people that aren't, and they are literally stuck. They are trapped. So this will not only empower a parent to be able to go shopping, so to speak, but also be a motivator to those schools that significantly underperform to realize, hey, uh, the students are now your customers. And if you fail to satisfy your customers, your customers can now vote with their feet and potentially put you out of business. Again, not wholesale trying to dismantle the public education system, but to simply say good old-fashioned healthy competition is good for all of us. All of the the old notion that all boats rise, right? Uh, The other idea I like here, too, with this initiative, Mike, is that uh, while tuitions vary from school to school, 
any money that's left over of the $14,000 per child, that is essentially kept in, we'll call it an educational trust fund, that that student then, once graduating from um, the the, the 12-year school, can then go to a college, can use it for university or for, uh, uh, you know, trade school, things of this sort. And I understand that they have until the age of 30 to invest that money in their education. It's only for education, not to go buy a new car. If they don't invest that money in education by the time they reach 30, that money goes back to the Treasury. But it can be a way to also ease some of the burden that so many people have once they graduate, now having to deal with the outrageous expense of education that oftentimes bankrupts folks. Right. And, and, um, you you, you know, this is... It's just so insane what's going on. Uh, you and I could talk forever about so many of these things. Let's go back uh, to to, uh, to uh, California basics here. In our state, we've got about 6 million K-12 students right in there, counting about 450 in private schools. And, and our state right now spends almost $20,000 per student. Not only Prop 98 funds, which are about 14 a year, but another five or six thousand dollars in grants and federal funds and everything else. That means that the average classroom of 25 students has five hundred thousand dollars a year coming into that classroom, and we're 48th in the nation. And not only that. Well, not only are we not teaching kids, we've got kids graduating can't read their own diploma. As the story goes, we're lying to them. We're really damaging everybody for the future, and and uh, and then uh, we we turn around, spend all all that money. It's absolutely outrageous, and that's why you know we have to have competition in the system. And I can tell you that those public schools are going to get better. Uh, and they're going to have to make some choices like every other business does. And believe me, that thing over there is a business. It runs extremely well. It just doesn't work for you and me. But for them and the people in the system, it works beautifully. Works beautifully. So when you figure that you get a hundred to $125,000 a year in urban areas going for teacher salaries, pensions, and whatnot, you got to ask yourself, what happened to the other three hundred and fifty or four hundred thousand? Well, that goes right right down the rat hole into administration and so forth. It'd be one thing if they were doing something for it, but they're not. So once this passes, they're going to have to make choices. And when people are hitting the doors, they're going to say, "Well, maybe this particular CRT program, maybe that's not working. Maybe." We should be more deferential to parents who do not want their children subjected to LGBTQ uh, indoctrination. Leave that to the parents to decide if they want to participate. Quit pressuring them. And maybe, just maybe, we ought to teach these kids the skills that they need for the future. Yeah, so they can participate fully in our society, Craig. Uh, Mike Alexander, chairman of the California School Choice Initiative, coming to a ballot box November of 22. Information on the web at californiaschoolchoice.org. That's californiaschoolchoice.org. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, I want to pivot to some other important topics. Um, you've no doubt been reading news concerning the um, six-week abortion ban that now is official in uh, the state of Texas, one of the strictest abortion bans in the nation. Uh, in addition to that, gabbing some headlines, one that isn't catching as much headlines but needs to right here at home in California Senate Bill 380. We've talked to Brian Johnston about this before. Uh, this monster of a bill is now going to the assembly floor. You see, this is why I say, when you wonder, I say, why we got a recall here in California of one. Uh, it ought to be 121, but I digress. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life, host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. Uh, Brian, we have been hoping and praying that this would stall somewhere in committee, but it appears not. Give us an update and remind listeners as to why Senate Bill 380 is so terribly dangerous. Yes, it's critically important that your assembly member in the state Senate in Sacramento, excuse me, state assembly in Sacramento, it's already passed the Senate. And SB 380 removes the existing safeguards, and I put those in quotes. But when assisted suicide was legalized back in 2015, they said there'd be some safeguards that you'd have to wait so long after the request, that there'd be other matters that, that wouldn't allow it to go into effect. But the safeguards now have been removed. And this measure removes any pretense that this is going to respect the lives of the vulnerable. And what that means is, and, and again, we've talked about assisted suicide in the past, ultimately in assisted suicide, a depressed person can ask, if I were to ask you, Craig, once we can for a moment, you're my doctor. Would you please tell me, Craig? You can decide one of two things. You could say, yeah, okay, I will. Or, if you're a good physician, you can say, you know, let's talk about it. You're motivated by depression. But the third thing is the doctor, he or she themselves, can make the determination. Well, okay, I guess we will. Or maybe tomorrow we will. I'm going to put you off. So, in point of fact, this isn't truly an element of autonomy and them honoring your decision. The doctor is still the final decision maker. The doctor is the outside lethal agent. The assisting suicide is a myth because it's not truly a suicide. It is facilitating by a third party and that third party is making all the decisions. Right now, People who are considered within six months of death, and the honest oncologist will tell you it's impossible to check, and here's the reality with this bill, there's no way to check. There's no way to double check. Now, I happen to know people ahead. I know someone from Lake County that died from COVID a week and a half ago. It's impossible to tell all of the details. You have to believe the story that the doctors tell you. We're living in a time where medical ethics has been completely inverted. Senate Bill 380 removes any remaining safeguards. And because of the nature of nursing homes, because of the way we are treating those who are dependent, those who might cost and might cost extra money, this is a very dramatic change in our cultural values regarding the vulnerable. 
Well, and, and it's particularly disturbing, I think, Brian, because <laughs> these are the people that we traditionally look to 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 find relief, to find healing. They've studied, they've they've allegedly dedicated their lives. They've taken an oath to do no harm in an effort to try and alleviate suffering and bring healing. And now all of a sudden there's this very awkward shift, this paradigm shift that's taken place where now instead of lining up on the side of life, they're suddenly lining up on the side of death. And I got to tell you, I I would be extremely ill at ease if I knew that my physician, the same person who prescribes medication, does examinations, and 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 allegedly is working to uh, uh, to help bring life and health to me, is also working on the side for others to help end their life. I I I I think that ought to give all of us the the, the notion of that possibility. The creeps. If in the Bill three eighty, your state assembly member will be voting on it very shortly. You should call your own state assembly member. You can look them up. You can Google it. Use my state rep. Your own assembly member needs to hear from you, and they listen the hardest to their own people in their district. This is Senate Bill 380. Urge a no vote. Don't remove the remaining protections regarding the medically vulnerable and the depressed. This is really, I, I cannot overemphasize how critical and urgent this is. And as Brian mentioned, you can go online, put your zip code in, and if you don't know who your local assembly person is, determine who they are, and then reach out. Phone calls, you're not going to talk to them directly, but you can leave a message with a receptionist. And by the way, all of those are very carefully notated and shared with the assembly member. Emails certainly will work if you want to do it the old-fashioned way and put a stamp on something, do that too. But I think out of a sense of urgency, telephone calls and emails are the best, urging he or she to vote no on Senate Bill 380. Brian, I'm pumping up against the uh, the top of the hour here. Brother, I apologize for the lateness of tonight's show. We'll, uh, we'll make it up to you. I want to remind you to check out Brian's weekly broadcast where he goes into these and other Life-related issues in great depth. Saturday mornings at 11 a.m., Life Matters here on KFAX. Complete information available along with podcasts at californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. 602, let's get you updated. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.